All right, good morning. As Kevin said, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and it's good to have you all with us this morning. Um, and as I was listening to um, just the worship this morning, uh, I was struck by particularly um, one of the lines in Rejoice, the first song that we sang. And I'm, I'm just going to read this um, to start us off this morning. It said, Rejoice, when you cry to him, he hears your voice. He will wipe away your tears. Rejoice in the midst of suffering. He will help you sing. Um, this morning, just hearing that, it, it took me back um, to one of the most painful and disordering times in my life. And, and I think um, I want to go to um, a passage that God used in that time to really give me grounding. And I think it will be a good foundation for us as we start today. Uh, it's Psalm 40, the ver- first three verses. It says this, and you'll hear the echoes of what we sang. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I just think that that is a perfect frame for what we're about to look at. And this picture of the prodigal son who was literally in a miry bog. Most of y'all know the story, uh, but he was lifted up and, and um, given a new song to sing at the banqueting table. Uh, and so keep that in mind um, as we go through today. Um, get started today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with a short story by the Brothers Grimm. Uh, some of you know the Brothers Grimm from your childhood, the fairy tales. Um, some of them were very much cleaned up from the versions they actually, actually wrote. Um, but I'm going to start with a short story called The Ungrateful Son. Uh, and I'm going to slightly censor the end a little bit since there are, we do have a, a varied audience today. It says this, Once a man was sitting with his wife before their front door. They had a roasted chicken which they were about to eat together. Then the man saw that his aged father was approaching, and he hastily took the chicken and hid it, for he did not want to share it with him. The old man came, had a drink, and went away. Now the son wanted to put the roasted chicken back on the table, but when he reached for it, it had turned into a large toad, which jumped onto his face and sat there and never went away again. If anyone tried to remove it, it looked venomously at him as though it would jump into his face so that no one dared to touch it. And the ungrateful son was forced to feed the toad every day, and thus he went to and fro in the world without rest. So I came across this wonderful story as uh, I was preparing for today, and and I thought I would share it with all of you, um, since it's such a a heartwarming tale for us this morning. Um, But if we we remember back to what we were talking about last week, um, at the reaction of the Pharisees and scribes to Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, it seemed that they kind of hoped for something similar um, for those who didn't live up to their standards. Here is what we were told. It said, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Uh, now, actually, this type of sentiment is pretty common Uh, if we really stop to think about it. And we we tend to try to think that, oh, we want people to get what they deserve. Um, But that sentiment is not wrapped up in the hope of the the gospel, more so in 
something like karma. Um, we, we want people to get what they deserve. But, now, we often try to dress it up and we'll call it justice, right? Like we just, we, we want justice to be done. But if we're really honest about our hearts, I think a lot of times we want retribution, right? Like we want, we want judgment for people. Um, so while this story from the Brothers Grimm clearly doesn't end in a way that we would publicly approve of, we wouldn't be out there saying, yeah, uh, we, we wouldn't make that public, I think it speaks to what our gut reaction would be in, in many situations. How many of us, when we see somebody swerving in and out of traffic, going down the road, do we think, oh, I, I bet in a few minutes I'm going to see flashing lights behind them? And, and we kind of hope for that, right? And it's not just that we're wanting the roads to be a safer place for all of us. No, we want them to get what's coming to them. And what we're going to see in our text for today, it shows us how the gospel pushes back on that reaction that we have. Um, it, it runs against the grain of our nature and, and actually is pretty offensive to our natural selves. So let's dive in. Verse 11 of, of Luke chapter 15. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Um, inheritance inheritances worked a, a bit different in ancient Israel than they do in our context. Uh, most of the time in our context, um, inheritances are just decided by each individual. We kind of make our own choices. Um, before my wife and I moved overseas, we had to make a will. Um, and when we did that, we met with a lawyer and they gave us this long list of questions. Um, we filled it all out based on our personal preferences for how our estate would be passed on if something happened to us. Um, we had freedom to make choices about, um, about how our, our property and, and belongings would be divided. Um, we could choose to allocate all or none of it to whomever we chose. But this isn't how inheritances worked in the context of this story. There was a thing known as the Jewish law of inheritance. And in that law, the assignments for who received what in the inheritance were fixed. Um, the property of the father would be split into parts based upon the number of sons plus one. So if, if, uh, if there were three sons, then the property would be split into four. If there were five sons, the property would be split into six, and, and so on and so forth. Then the eldest son would receive two parts of the inheritance, and the rest of the sons would all receive one part. There are some other rules that would apply, um, but that'll, that'll do for our purposes today. Um, Unlike our context today, this, this really couldn't be changed. Um, a father couldn't decide to just cut his son off um, from his inheritance. You, you couldn't really disown someone from their inheritance. It was, it was fixed. It was written into the law. This was a legal right of the son, and it was designed to keep property within the family. Uh, so here's how this plays out for our parable today. Since there were two sons, the inheritance would have been divided into thirds, and the oldest would eventually receive two-thirds, and the youngest would receive one-third. That was a guaranteed portion. Um, but none of this should have been available until after the death of the father. Um, so it was, it was audacious and sinful for this younger son to approach the father in, in such a heartless and dishonoring way, essentially considering the father to be dead to him by demanding his portion of the inheritance prematurely. 
The father had every right to deny this request. Nothing required him to give this inheritance before, um, before he had died. Um, but he ultimately gave his son what he asked for anyway. His son was actively walking away from him, yet he graciously gave him what he asked for. The son's rebellion at this point was already complete in his heart, regardless of what the father did. But can you imagine the pain of the father? Um, as he, he knows how foolish his son is being. He's watching him walk away, yet he can, he can do nothing um, to stop him from running headlong into destruction. I can imagine the tears welling up in his eyes as the son rode away. Not only was his son betraying him, that was enough, but he was also walking into, um, he was walking away from everything that was good. He was walking away from his father, from his family, from, from everything that he had, just so that he could pursue entertainment and fun. He was rejecting the safety and security of his father's house so that he could enjoy what he considered to be freedom. And actually, this would have come at a price to the father. Being undermined by a wandering son like this would have been a very disgraceful thing in that society. Uh, to connect this parable to the reaction of the religious leaders, and we talked about last week, the younger son would have easily fallen into the category of the tax collectors and sinners with whom Jesus chose to dine, and the father would have been a father of this wayward son, this tax collector and sinner. The next thing we see in this, as we go along, um, is in verse 13. It says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So the youngest son is there living it up in this distant land. The parable makes it clear that he was living a reckless and foolish life. He was making no investment in anything of value, of anything meaningful. Everything he was pouring himself into and his, uh, himself and his resources into appears to be for selfish pleasure and ultimately was in vain. He was living in a type of perceived freedom that was actually enslaving him to his foolish desires. He, he felt free, um, but actually he wasn't. As we go on, this, this next verse, we can, we can easily overlook it, but there's some important information in here for us. Verse 14. And when he, had spent when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So we need to understand that it wasn't this famine that left him destitute. Like we can see that, right? Yes, that was the trigger that exposed for him how far gone he was. Um, but it wasn't the famine that caused the turmoil in his life. He had already spent everything that he had. He had already wasted his inheritance um, and that was already gone when this famine hit. Based on what we know from the story, even if he had just taken his inheritance and hadn't gone back home, it's likely that this famine wouldn't have left him destitute um, if he had just stewarded his inheritance wisely. But that's not why he left home, right? He wanted, to, he wanted his freedom. It was ultimately his own sinful indulgence that led to what we're going to see next. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, 
and no one gave him anything. This is quite the fall. Not only was he destitute, but now he was so desperate that he went to work feeding pigs. Now, everyone listening to this story, as Jesus told it, would have known the implications of that. Pigs were unclean animals. And in Jewish religious tradition, owning pigs would have, would have, been, would have brought a curse on the owner. Yet this, this youngest son found himself not even as the owner of pigs, but as a hired hand taking care of pigs, feeding the pigs. And actually he got to the point of longing to eat what the pigs were eating. Yet still no one would give him even any of that. So going back to the, the short story that I read at the beginning, it's, it's a near certainty that those listening at this time would have quickly felt that just like the son who hid the chicken and ended up with a frog attached to his face, this son also got what he deserved. Right? Jesus had just spelled out for them the rightful consequences of his actions. It's, it's highly likely that they would have approved and, and possibly even applauded um, these consequences. And it's just as likely that they would have felt that they were so much more righteous and deserving of the blessing than this son who had disgraced his father and his family. But this story is about to take a turn. Eventually, the son is going to realize what he had done. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, but I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, it's true that the consequences of the son's actions were real and deserved. And the situation for him would only continue unless something drastically changed. He wasn't going to be able to work his way out of this situation. He's not going to be there feeding pigs and, and one day work himself out of that back into, um, back into the wealth that he once had. He couldn't just sit back and pretend that his... Um, sinful choice to exploit and disgrace his father had never happened. He couldn't just act like none of that took place. He was bearing the fruit of his own actions. And yet we see here in these verses that he repented. Yes, he was upset that his actions had led to really bad consequences. Any of us would be. But beyond that, he realized that he had really messed up and he was sorry for that. And we see the shift in, in real time here, we see the shift from the arrogance of a young kid who just wanted to live life his way to this lowly pig feeder who admits that he hasn't lived up to the role of a son. So he is, he's made up his mind. He's going to go plead with his father to just let him be a servant. But even that isn't something that he's sure if his father will allow. In the middle of this story, this younger son got a temporal glimpse of eternal truth that is spelled out for us in Psalm 84. Psalm 84.10 says this, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. See, he had come to the point where he no longer wanted the tents of those who were wicked. He wanted, he wanted to just be a doorkeeper in the house of his father. 
He realized that just being able to be on his father's property, even as the lowliest servant, would be far better than where he found himself now. It made all the, it made all the risk worth it. The risk of potentially, and maybe even rightly, being discarded just as he had once discarded his father. But he had to at least try. So in full repentance and in complete humility, he picked himself up and made the trek back to his father's house. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Remember that those in the room when Jesus were telling this story would have likely thought that the the young man got what he deserved. And it's absolutely true that he bore the weight of the consequences of his own choices and actions. But here's the the thing. We tend to lump two things together um, that, that don't necessarily go together. It can be really easy for us to see consequences for our actions and decisions and to think that that means the fact that we have consequences means that we're no longer loved or accepted. When we can think that when we're suffering because of the results of our own sin, it means that God has just left us and wants nothing to do with us. But that's not true at all. See, what we see in verse 20 has nothing to do with the consequences. It doesn't erase the effects of the sins of this younger son. The pain and loss from that are still there. There was still harm done that would need to be addressed. But what we see is the father first and foremost overcome by love and joy at his son's repentance. To the point that he ran to meet his son while he was still a long way off and he embraced and kissed him. And in response, we see the son's prepared statement confessing his wrongdoing and humbling himself before his father. Jesus was doing something as he told this parable. The religious leaders were so concerned about keeping themselves unstained that they were missing everything. They knew the law well, but they missed what the law was pointing them to. The the law was not a set of instructions that would make them acceptable to God. The law was meant to reveal sin and show how impossible it is for us to make ourselves acceptable to God by keeping it. The law is not bad. It's actually very good but it isn't our source of life. And that's what the religious leaders were missing and what Jesus was confronting. They weren't accepted by keeping the law and these tax collectors and sinners weren't excluded from the love of Jesus and his desire that they be reconciled to God because they hadn't kept it. In fact, we see in Romans 2, 4, it says this, or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Or again in Romans 5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We see that here in this parable. The younger son clung to this ounce of hope that his father would still be kind to him despite the way that he had treated his father. And that hope of kindness of the father, for the patience of his father, for the forbearance of his father, led him to repent. And it wasn't just that he said a few repentant words. He, in his fragile hope, stood up, 
took the long journey back and returned to his father's house. And his hope of acceptance becomes reality as his father came and embraced him before he could even get those words out of his mouth. His actions revealed to his father far more than his words ever could the sincerity of his repentance. The words were good and necessary, but the fact that he chose to come home was enough for the father to rejoice. And it's going to get better. Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Hey, the father running to hug his long lost son, that, that's one thing, right? This is crazy. Like, this, is, this is lavish. Not only does his father express his affection and joy that his son is back safely, but he blesses him greatly. He doesn't just accept him back to his house as a servant. No, he treats him as a son. He restores him. None of what the father did here shows that he sees his son as a servant anymore. He brings a robe and a ring, and he brings him shoes, which the servants at that time didn't wear. And he slaughters the calf that had been prepared for a feast so that they can celebrate. It is a stunning scene. It wasn't enough that the father was overjoyed that his son was back. He wanted everyone to share in that joy. Last week, we talked about all the host of heaven rejoicing when a lost sheep returns. Or the host of heaven rejoicing when the lost coin was found. But it isn't just the host of heaven that are invited in. Jesus is inviting the entire family of God into rejoicing over one another. And it doesn't require our perfection. It requires our repentance. But not everyone would join in. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. You gave, never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. This is the part of the story that gets most pointed. The people with Jesus had just heard two other parables that, that kind of put them on the defensive. And Jesus had just told them about a shepherd leaving the flock to go chase a lost sheep and then everyone rejoicing. And he told them about a coin that was lost in the dust and cobwebs and everyone rejoiced as it was found. Both of those stories challenged their view of the sinners and tax collectors. But Jesus hadn't directly confronted them in those parables. He waited until this one to turn directly to them. See, again, I, I can imagine the posture of their hearts as they heard this story. They, they started off in disgust as they heard of this despicable son. They probably pronounced shame on the father for having such a terrible son, while they simultaneously wrote him off as being selfish and disrespectful and unclean. I can imagine the head shakes when he squandered his inheritance. And then the head nods in agreement as he began to experience 
the consequences. I can imagine the ideas that went through their minds as he starts to think about returning, thinking that ungrateful kid doesn't deserve that at all. He'll be lucky if the father will even give him the time of day. And then I can imagine the shock and awe when the father actually runs out to meet him. And I, I can imagine that they share in the anger of the older brother when there's a party thrown for him. Why in the world would the father do that? See, I can see from their perspective because it's often my perspective as well. It's so easy to see the sin of others from a, posturing, from a posture of self-righteousness and to look at people dealing with the consequences of their own actions and think that it's just them getting what they deserve. How dare they think that they should have it any better. So when Jesus gets to the older brother, it's not comfortable for these religious leaders. And maybe it's not so comfortable for many of us as well. Let's look at what happened. See, the older brother heard this commotion, and, and he wanted to know what was happening. So he asked the servant, what's, what's going on? What is, this, what is this about? And when he found out that it was a party for his younger brother, he was angry. Here's something we need to see. He was invited in. There was an offer for joy for him. There was an offer to join the party. His father even came out to personally invite him in to plead with him. But while we already saw that the younger son in his pursuit of freedom wasn't really free, we also see that this older son in his self-righteousness wasn't free either. While the younger brother was a slave to his own desires, the older brother was a slave to the law. And the only place in this story where true joy was actually found is at the table with the father. Here's what the father said. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You remember that Jewish law of inheritance? The inheritance of the older son is still intact here. He still gets the two-thirds. He wasn't losing anything. The fact that the, the father welcomed back his younger son didn't diminish the value that, uh, of what would one day become his. But in his bitterness, he was rejecting this offer for joy. It's so easy for us to want vengeance instead of repentance. When we feel like life is unfair, we can want pain for those who we feel have received what they shouldn't. And it's very true that sinners don't deserve the mercy of the father. That's why it's called mercy, it's not wages. We've been given a gift that we did not earn. See, the older son wasn't due the inheritance because of his faithfulness or obedience. It was because he was a son. And that's the very same reason that we in Christ receive our inheritance as well. We are sons and daughters of the king by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The younger son had already squandered his portion of the inheritance. He, he wasn't going to get that back. There would be hardships for him going forward. But in his repentance, he both received and was a catalyst for joy. In his repentance, he was accepted and rejoiced over. It's a glorious thing when we realize that Jesus doesn't hate us in our rebellion. 
We have hope in the kindness of God that he will receive us with open arms and welcome us into his house. This isn't in the text here, but it's pretty much a given that the younger son was going to mess up again, right? We, we can pretty much say that this younger son, he wasn't going to be perfect from here on out. He would do things again to grieve his father. He had built habits that would continue to plague him. But he had seen the reaction of his father to his repentance. The love the father showed when, when this younger son returned would cause the fear of coming back and repenting again to melt away. Our father in heaven knows us well. He knows we are fickle and we are prone to wander. He knows we actively choose our own way time and time again. Yet he tells us if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, unlike the story from the Brothers Grimm that I read to start today, we don't have to carry around a curse for the rest of our lives. Unlike that story, God doesn't operate in the realm of karma. He operates in grace and mercy. He's the God who is love. There will be consequences for our actions and decisions. And some of those may be really hard and they may persist for a long time. But there's always, always, always the truth that the Father longs to run to us and embrace us if we will repent and turn to him. And when we do, there's great rejoicing over us. And that is the heart of the gospel. That is the good news that Jesus came to bring. The Father is watching. The Father is waiting for us to turn, and he will run to us and welcome us with open arms. And that's the truth that we celebrate week in and week out. Let's pray. Father, um, it really doesn't matter where we, where we are today. This parable speaks to everybody. This parable, um, Father, we really can't hide from this. There's conviction for each one of us in this today. But there's also the offer of joy. There's the offer of, of getting getting to hear our Father say, welcome back. Let's throw a party. Let's rejoice. Yeah, I know, I know, you've done all these things. You're repentant. I forgive you. Let's have a party. Let's rejoice. Hey, everybody, look, my son is back. Let's all join in together. Father, I pray that today that we would understand the depths of what that means for us. Father, that the, the shame and the guilt that we carry would, would melt away. And Father, that the judgment and desire for vengeance would melt away as we see this offer for joy. As we see the love and the forbearance and the patience and the kindness of a good father. And Father, I pray that we would receive that. 
Father, that we would recognize your goodness. That we would recognize your kindness and, and our, our fear would melt away as we run back to you in humility, but with an expectation knowing that you're going to welcome us back. And we have full confidence to approach your throne by the blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you and we ask, um, Father, I ask that we would just sit with this today. There's so much in this. I pray that it would, um, that it would compel us um, to come to you, to come sit with you and experience, experience the riches of your feast. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.